Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast. My name is Yue Hua and I'm a research fellow at RISE focusing on teachers and management. And today I'm speaking with Cynthia Ravina, who is the deputy team lead of the RISE Indonesia country research team, as well as a researcher at the Smeru Research Institute in Jakarta. We talk about studies that the RISE Indonesia team have done about the teaching profession in Indonesia. And among the things we discuss are just how complex and entrenched some of these issues are. They cut across the different phases of the teacher career cycle, different stakeholders, different perceptions of what a good teacher is, different government departments that hold authority over teachers and their work. And we also get into just how important it is for research projects to delve into these complexities in the hope of moving the needle by deepening shared understandings of what exactly the problems and challenges are. Hello, Cynthia. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Yuyi. It's great to have you here. Now, uh, you and the rest of the team, you've been working on studies covering a lot of different aspects of the teaching profession. So, And you've also been a school teacher and a lecturer in pre-service teacher training in Indonesia yourself. So you've experienced a lot of this stuff on the ground. But I'm just curious about whether there have been any big or small insights or observations from doing these larger scale RISE Indonesia studies. Um, anything that either surprised you or that made you go, ah, now this thing about teaching in Indonesia finally makes sense to me. Yeah, thank you for uh, this very interesting question. Um, first of all, without a doubt, I reflected frequently from the RISE Indonesia studies especially those in which I am directly involved. You know that uh, when you are undertaking a study from reviewing the literature, preparing the instruments, collecting the data, and writing the whole thing, you instinctively reflect on your own experiences along the process, right? And for instance, uh, our political economy study of teacher recruitment made me understand why our hiring practices are a mess and why our system is not recruiting highly skilled teachers. And although this problem has been widely recognized for so many years, it has not been addressed properly. And in our paper, we show that there are at least three factors behind this struggle. And uh, first, is that our public school teacher recruitment process is part of the general civil servant recruitment. So basically, we use the same tools to shortlist teachers, administrators, or other professions in government um, agencies. And there is no mechanism in the hiring process to ensure that our public school teachers can teach effectively. And based on on experience as a teacher in a private school in Jakarta, this practice is um, very different from what happened in private schools. Um, During my time, the recruitment in the private school was rigorous and schools would only keep effective teachers and stop reassigning the low-performing teachers. Second, the division of authority for teacher recruitment among different ministries 
and between our central and local government is far from cohesive and the situation affects the number of teachers recruited in our public schools in one year or in a certain period because the number is not based on the actual number of teachers needed at the school. Instead, it is based on how much budget our central government have <laughs> in, that, in that year to hire civil servant officers, including teachers. So uh, the opening of teaching position then um, does not match with the school needs. Schools are always in need of teachers. And these new teachers with good qualification may not want to wait for the opening, right? Mm. Because the schedule is unknown to the public. We don't really know when it will open or whether this year we will have the uh, hiring of the teacher. And then many of these teachers then choose to teach at good private schools or even find other professions than teaching. And in our teacher diary study, some teachers even left teaching because they were so frustrated with this civil servant recruitment process. Mm. Yes, you can imagine that. And I said there are three, <laughs> now is the last. <laughs> the effective hiring process um, in Indonesia is locked in by the, in uh, by the interests of many parties, including politician ministries, like you said, teacher associations, and even school principals. So a more effective teacher recruitment process other than civil servant scheme has never been an option in our country. So uh, mm. these people even suggest that our contract teachers who were recruited informally should be um, automatically promoted to the civil servant status or permanently hired without going through any selection process. You can imagine the civil servant recruitment process is flawed and now they said no selection mm -hmm. process at all. So then at the end, I can say, ah, now I understand why our teaching profession is like this. <laughs> oh, man. And it's given how complex the situation is from what you've just laid out, I guess it's uh, no surprise that it took this wide range of studies with different perspectives to understand that, which is very different from what, I guess, a teacher in a classroom or a teacher trying to navigate the process would would be able to see. Um, so your team at Smeru, you've been using a wide range of research methods in this teacher studies, right? You mentioned the teacher diary study and also the political economy analyses. And I know for say the teacher recruitment study used a lot of interviews and archival documents, but the team have also done, you know, randomized control trials and quasi-experimental work to understanding these teacher dynamics as well. So, uh, I, I mean, at RISE and me personally, we're all big fans of using lots of different research methods and interdisciplinary work. So what are some of the common themes or observations that have been emerging across these different studies and different methods? Yeah, well, among some of the common themes that have been um, emerging across different studies and different methods are the teacher professional learning and the issue of informal recruitment of contract teacher and their irregular low paid remuneration. So on the teacher professional learning, we have three studies discussing the issue. 
Um, there are a mixed method study on the impact of resurface teacher professional education on teaching effectiveness, and then uh, a qualitative study on teacher professional development, and a study using the problem-driven uh, iterative adaptation, the PDIA approach, to establish a demand-driven demand TPD system in uh, Jakarta province. So another theme is the issue of informal recruitment of contract teacher. And there are also three studies in uh, RICE Indonesia that investigated this issue from different angles using different methods. So there are teacher recruitment study, which uses the political economy analysis to examine, among others, um, why the undesirable situation of contract teacher persists. And a study in a city in West Sumatra province that uses the also the PDIA approach to design contract teacher selection tools. And uh, the, policy, the policy diffusion study, which uses both quantitative and qualitative methods to understand the factors uh, driving the adoption of contract teacher allowance policy in many districts in Indonesia. So far, uh, UE, we have only got results from the political economy study, while the other two studies are still ongoing. But I believe that, as you say, the other uh, studies will complement the result obtained from our political economy analysis for sure. No, that's, I will be excited to see what comes out of that. And I think there were also, because the contract teacher issue also came up a bit in some of the Kiat Guru data, right, which is the performance pay study. And uh, I've been looking, reanalyzing some of the qualitative data on this with the team and uh, the dynamic that comes up is that some contract teachers, certain types, aren't eligible for the bonus that performance pay is based on. So they're like, why should we care about this new evaluation thing? Because it's not going to affect us either way. So so it's interesting how yeah, this issue just cuts across so many different aspects of the system, which I guess, of course, we would expect if we were being good systems thinking people and considering the full range of interactions. But it's just fascinating to me, at least, to see this play out so clearly across these different studies that your team are using um, with different methods. Yeah, hopefully when the results are out, we can uh, discuss more about how the different studies can contribute to the, uh, to the new knowledge on the topic. I will look forward to that. At RISE, we often talk about how low learning levels in education systems are often cyclical. So, for example, if parents haven't mastered foundational literacy and numeracy, then it's harder for them to support their children in learning to master how to read and count. But in the teacher diary study that you all did of novice teachers, uh, where you gave teachers different prompts at different times to reflect and write about, you encountered another really interesting aspect of these low learning cycles. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this? Yes, um, I'm always excited actually to talk about the teacher diary study, uh, not only because the data is rich, but the process of collecting the data itself has also given us many lessons. Um, so after the first few diaries were collected, the study team discuss whether we should take different approach 
or use different types of instruction when asking the novice teachers to write their diaries on a certain issue because um, we think that we get really little from their writing and later after we collected more of their writings we reflected mm -hmm. on ourselves that as a student we were not really equipped with uh, adequate reflective skills or mm -hmm. excellent writing skills so when we grow up and now when we are working as a researcher uh, we obtain these skills from institutions outside of schools and uh, we then think our novice teachers low quality of writing and their inability to make deep reflections may indicate the failure of our schools and our education system more broadly you know and then it is what we often call uh, in rice indonesia schooling but not learning and mm. You can imagine these teachers with low literacy level will teach literacy skills to their future students. In our case, uh, they are primary school students. Um, and it is an issue that our teacher education has not recognized this low learning cycle. And then this low learning cycle continues, right? Mm. Even in one of our preliminary report on pre-service teacher study, we found that only 12% of our sample teachers think, uh, this is their perception, that the professional education program they participated, uh, the one-year program, equipped them with adequate skills to facilitate students' literacy learning. So only 12% of them. Oh. <laughs> Usually the self-report, uh, nature of the survey reported something that is uh, the, the number is bigger than the actual right so you can imagine mm -hmm. when there are only 12 uh, percent of the of the teachers think that they have these skills and they admitted that they had not mastered this foundational skill um let alone teaching it to their future students yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. did you i'm i'm curious also about whether over the course of the teacher diary study because it ran for what is it two years yes so have have there been have you seen improvements in maybe the richness or the depth of insight in the diary entries over time as they've continued to work with you yeah um actually the improvement is not that significant uh, but we overcome this issue by having phone interview after each of uh, the diary written by the teachers and this phone interview function not only to uh, clarify their thoughts on the diaries which we uh, often find too little information in there but also uh, the interview can uh, be kind of transition to give them idea on what kind of topic we will discuss in the next diary and i think this kind of practice really helpful for the teachers especially because again because of their low literacy and uh, they kind of feel more comfortable to talk over uh, their thinking over this interview uh, rather than write it up on diary or journal 
that that makes sense to me also because um my experience in Malaysia as well is that often written things feel very formal and as you're saying if you spent your whole school career being told that oh the way you write a good formal thing is you find a template of someone who's done it before whether it's a formal letter or the piece of project work that your seniors two years before did and then you kind of just copy it and modify it in a formal way for your own purposes uh, so the phone call feels quite different and yeah. this is a bit of a tangent but this is also reminding me of something that Lance Pritchett said about the MindSpark computer adaptive learning programs in India, which are being studied by our Rise India PIs, Karthik Muralitharan and Abhijit Singh. And Lant was telling me about these MindSpark studies, where he said that maybe he thinks one reason why MindSpark is effective, and I'm completely paraphrasing here, and I might be slightly off, is that he said that because teachers in India are so used to being um so used to being expected to teach classroom lessons that follow the curriculum, regardless of where children actually are. So it's hard to get teachers and parents to agree that teachers should actually teach the children's learning levels, whereas a computer program is a completely different kind of model. So there are no preconceptions about what the computer program should do. So it's completely fine if the computer program just suits the kid's learning level, even if the kid is maybe two grade levels behind in math where the curriculum should be. Uh, I know that's a bit of a stretch, but it's it just struck me as an interesting parallel between different modes having different norms of behavior attached to them and how that also affects people's thinking processes and expectations in education. Yeah, the, the situation that you describe in India is quite similar to ours. So yeah, I really can uh, relate to what you just said about uh, the you know the teachers following curriculum rather than the students learning level so the studies that you co-authored on in-service teacher training and on teacher recruitment in Indonesia um, they clearly show two types of complexity that tend to make it really difficult to reform teacher policies so specifically um, there was the fact that there are many competing expectations placed on teachers I mean we were just talking about the expectation that teachers follow the curriculum. And some of these competing expectations don't have anything to do with actually teacher quality or student learning. And a second type of complexity that makes it hard to reform teacher policy is that the teaching profession is regulated by several different government authorities, like you were saying right at the beginning. Um, so to what extent, in your experience, do people within the education system in Indonesia itself, do they recognize these issues to be problems? I think I would like to start with a story. Um, mm -hmm. I so, love stories. <laughs> yeah. So back in 2019, we have this event called the RISE Update, um, where we shared our research results to the general audience. So among uh, those invited were representatives of the teacher association and I was presenting and I opened with teacher quality issue from the latest result of the teacher competence test and after I finished my session there was a man from the teacher association who objected my statement um, really <laughs> he mainly blamed the tools used in the test which we all know not flawless 
okay, their uh, flow, but still gave us some insights into our teacher performance. And uh, the test only covered items to measure teacher pedagogical and content knowledge, while according to him, it should also include sections that measure teacher personality and uh, social competence. In other words, he thought that lowly skilled teachers in terms of pedagogical and content knowledge uh, are acceptable as long as these teachers have good personality and can adapt socially to the school environment. And whenever the team and I talk to teachers, school principals, school supervisors, or local education agency officers, they show some kind of agreement with what the men from the teacher association argued. So you can imagine that. And from this story and uh, this reality struck me that many people in the system do not recognize this uh, problem of lowly skilled teachers. And if student learning outcome is poor, it is because students or parents are not trying hard enough. Um, the issuance of teacher certificate uh, makes, the makes this situation worse. And teachers with certificate are called professional teachers. So they think they are highly skilled teachers, professional, when in fact they are not. And um, many people in the system also suggested uh, our government to upgrade these lowly skilled contract teachers to be automatically promoted to permanent civil servant position, like I mentioned in the beginning. So according to them, um, our contract teachers have thought under temporary arrangement for many years, which shows their loyalty to the uh, country and they deserve this promotion without taking additional tests. So mm -hmm. to your uh, first question, my answer is that, um, yes, the problem is there, but uh, then to your second questions, um, unfortunately, not so many people really recognize that as a problem. And then what I think of the possible strategies to overcome these issues is that the first step that we can do is to revise our current teacher professional standards to make uh, to make them more measurable so that we can then use these standards to distinguish effective from ineffective teachers. And this would also allow us to agree on the indicators of what is a good teacher, what is a highly skilled teachers. And this standard can also be used as a guidance for recruiting and developing our teachers. Because uh, you, if you have a look our current standards you can read bahasa indonesia <laughs> others <Yep>. may <laughs> not but the current standards stated that teacher uh, stated the teacher competence very broadly that a teacher should master four competencies namely pedagogical mm. professional social and personality competence um to me, not only the definition of each of these competencies is vague, but uh, they are also detached from student learning. 
The standard also ignores the fact that um, levels of competence exist. So, for example, the standard set competence goals without explicitly defining what competence means or differentiating between basic, intermediate, or advanced competence level for teachers at different stages of their career. Um, mm -hmm. There's only one level of competence a teacher must meet, this, uh, the basic minimum level, uh, but most teachers, in fact, are below this basic minimum level. <laughs> <laughs> so with, yeah. with the in existence of uh, good standards, it is not surprising that our people cannot, cannot really recognize what matters and what not in a teacher. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree. I think if I remember correctly, but I might be several years out of date, um, in Malaysia, where I'm from, the the standards you need to pass to be a permanent civil service teacher also include things like a physical fitness test, which is fair enough, I guess, from a health point of view, but also like a test of your patriotism of some sort. Uh, so, and But of course, the, the, it's from what you are saying, it's clear that these issues are just so complex and so deep-seated in both good ways and bad ones, right? And I think one, one tension that we talk a lot about I mean, among those of us at the RISE Directorate is that to a very large extent, many it's legitimate to have competing goals because education plays such a big role in society. It's completely legitimate and good and right that people in the system want um, teachers to socialize the children to have certain values, certain dispositions. Um, but then, like you were saying, when when those priorities become defined in very specific and narrow ways, maybe around certain types of personality, and when they overshadow the learning goals, then that becomes a problem because the kind of world we live in today, if, if a kid spends six years in school and can't read and write and do math after those six years, then the system has really failed the child because they'll struggle so much more in just navigating the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, I definitely really appreciate that. Just the level of, I think, richness and awareness of context that that all the, these Indonesia CRT studies have about teachers um, really allows us to get into some of these deep issues, which is great. Um, and also, I think another really cool thing about the research that you've been doing about teachers is that it doesn't just sit in working papers and journal articles, but uh, so the fact that there are so many discussions and like advice about, oh, how to improve research impact, how to communicate your research to the public. And you and the team have really been acting on that because for the past couple of years, you've been writing about teacher research and teacher policy for the conversation, which um, is a platform that helps researchers to communicate their research publicly in a non-jargony way that gets carried in newspapers and other journalistic outlets. And recently, the we saw, we were excited to see that the education and youth editor of the conversation, Indonesia, chose you and your Smeru colleagues as his favorite writer for 2020. So I would love to hear any anecdotes you have maybe about the challenges or the benefits of translating your really big and complex research projects into this brief column 
publicly friendly format. Yeah, actually, um, I thank the Smeru communication team and editors um, who helped us a lot during the writing process. Um, and thanks to my senior at Smeru, uh, Mr. Seiko Usman, he encouraged, uh, encouraged us all, like the young uh, researchers, to extract our research into smaller publishable materials. Like he told us once that policymakers or their staffs often have little interest to read your long policy papers. <laughs> <laughs> or even when you already um, translated into policy brief, they're still too formal uh, for them. So according to him, one strategy that we can do to reach uh, these policymakers and their staffs and to be noticed is through this online platform, such as the conversation. Um, this is definitely true in Indonesia, where people have low interest in reading complex texts, but very much interested in social media and online readings. And most importantly, the strategy works uh, for us. And mm. so our works are getting noticed and appreciated, like you said. And also, the articles are in Bahasa Indonesia, our national language. This gives access to people who do not read English to our works, the working papers, since um, our working papers are all in English. And in, in, in Indonesia, um, many people still prefer to read uh, things in Bahasa Indonesia. And um, maybe I have uh, one challenge during this process. I had no previous experience in writing popular article like in the conversation format and to me it has its own art and is quite mm -hmm. different from writing policy paper or journal articles of course um, so for my first article the editorial team of the conversation gave <laughs> they gave me many notes and deleted many of my lines <laughs> But then I learned their editing style, the uh, more casual way of writing, um, and discussed with our in-house editor at Smeru about the feedbacks I received from the conversation. And I think after that, I can write more effectively after two or three publications. But the first two publications, I really got uh, my lines deleted like a lot. <laughs> Well, that's that's still very impressive progress if it just took two or three. And I think what you were saying, um, both about making it accessible and about um, the importance of writing in Bahasa Indonesia reminded me of something I heard a Taiwanese academic say when she was speaking at University Malaya. She said that um, traditionally, people in, based in Taiwanese universities communicate their research to the public a lot, both through um, newspaper articles and books written in the local language. But then when international university rankings became a bigger and bigger thing, then the pressure was in for them to write in English in international journals instead, which, as you are saying, people who actually can change policy rarely have the time, even if they have the inclination to read these things. So that's Mm -hmm. That's really encouraging to hear that you and your Smeru colleagues have found a good outlet for that. And it sounds like a 
a supportive editorial team at the conversation who share share that vision of making research accessible. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, uh, that's that's also a good challenge for the rest of us at RISE to think about how we're communicating our research. And I have one last question for you. So what is one thing that you wish other people knew about the education system in Indonesia? Okay, thank you. Uh, I think I will keep this short. Um, like the Indonesian Ministry of Education uh, claims to have implemented many programs, right, to improve our education since uh, the decentralization 20 years ago. Uh, decentralization started 20 years ago. While it is true that, yes, we have increased access to compulsory education, but the PISA and the uh, IFLS study suggest uh, zero improvement in our student learning over the years. So the main problem here is more uh, fundamental than simply replacing our old programs with new programs. So uh, the government, our government must first address the root problem, the system-wide inconsistencies in order for new programs to be effective. Otherwise, the new programs or new reforms would be unproductive as in previous years. And uh, that's exactly what we are doing here in RISE, right? Um, we study about the education system level uh, root cause, uh, root problems. So we can identify uh, how we should do in the future. So thank you for that very thoughtful and also very hopeful observation, Cynthia. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure and I've learned so much and have a lot to take away and mull over now. So Yui, I think uh, your question uh, make me think and the whole team think again about what we have uh, been doing and in RISE Indonesia and I think in uh, RISE uh, more globally um, that's what we exactly are doing here uh, in Indonesia at least we work with the Ministry of Education and with our local governments to provide evidence on the root problems that have caused bigger problems um, so hopefully in the future, uh, Indonesia can have more impactful programs that can address learning crisis issue in our education by using uh, our research as evidence to move forward. That's great. I certainly hope so too. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at RISE Program. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE Podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE Program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.